that I can say that I hate. But I hate car trouble above all things. Is that not the most discouraging thing to encounter? There was one particular year I had a really, uh, I guess, a car that was in bad shape. And I was reviewing some journals recently, and I just saw all the stresses, car trouble, car trouble, car trouble. And mechanical things just break down. I'm enjoying this uh, hand-free microphone I'm using, but I was standing there with my son Lincoln, and, and the top of it popped off. I'm sitting there trying to worship God, looking for it, and wondering if I need to change. I had to go ask Steve a question about it, and he found it. And I think we're good. I think we're good, but stuff just doesn't work like you want it to. When I was in high school and college, I had a small lawn service business, and I would mow yards, and I enjoyed doing that to a certain degree. But the one thing that made me retire from mowing lawns, and why it's the same reason why I pay people to mow my lawn today, is the weed eater. The weed eater is terrible. You never can get it started when you need to get it started. And the plastic lining in it, the plastic piece that does the work is just terrible. Do y'all agree with me? Usually I see nods of agreement, but y'all are like, dead. Like, make me laugh. Impress me. This is not good. So stuff in life just breaks down. And, and that's to be expected. And we shouldn't be shocked when we discover things are broken. And when I think about this, as a people, as humanity itself, we think about a lot of the different ways we encounter brokenness around us. Think about our country and the brokenness the people showed to the government, the brokenness, the relationship between the people and the government in the 1960s. There are all types of reasons that the student movement protested and others protested the civil rights the different reasons we could we could all discuss but one of the reasons was the Vietnam War and after World War One World War Two Korean War which was forgotten there's a generation that said this relationship just isn't working uh, we don't want to go to Vietnam and I honor those who did go so I'm not trying to incite an old argument here trying to illustrate and show that in that case, the people said, the students, young adults said, the relationship we have with our government is not going to work. We saw this with the fall of communism. There was an uprising among the people, and it happened all through the communist bloc, but specifically um, a trigger point for that was in Poland, where the president was giving a speech under the controlled environment and the story goes that one lady yelled out, liar. And it started, it started this sense of verbal revolt, which led to the fall of that regime, which was one of the contributing factors to the fall of all of communism. The agreement was not working out. The relationship between the people and the government, and we've seen this to a lesser degree or, or a different degree with the recent Arab Spring. Systems sometimes, the systems, the relationship we have with them, we realize there's a brokenness with those. 2008 was a very scary time because our financial system was broken. Financial system was broken because there were banks that were too large to fail 
because the manipulation and the corruption made our economy dependent upon them. When houses were valued to a point that all of us, me included, I was using my house like it was a credit card, thinking that the value was going to go up infinitely. And then the price of homes were overpriced. Our economy was vulnerable. If you remember you as a taxpayer, we bailed out General Motors and Chrysler because we, we realized that the financial system was not, it was corrupt, it was broken. Things weren't working. And there's still some issues to address with that. Education. In education, there's a brokenness because there's large segments of our culture and schools that are underperforming and whatever metric you want to use, whether it's test scores or whether it's the value of the students and the value of life of students, there are schools that are way underperforming among population groups that are the most vulnerable. So we see that some of what we've done in the education system is broken and it's not working. In higher education, there's a brokenness because students have tens and thousands of debt, some up to 100,000 and more of debt. They're not, be able, they're not able to find jobs that sustain that type of debt load. And students and parents are saying, this relationship is broken. This is not going to work. We can't just see the cost of education go up and up and up and it not bring the value that it needs to bring. So th- these are kind of some of the macro issues that affect us and that that we see brokenness. And whether these issues interest you or you want to ignore them, they affect your life. So for those of you who are thinking, I wanted to come to church to forget all that stuff, well, I'm not going to talk about it the rest of the sermon. But whether we follow these issues closely or just ignore them, they affect our lives. Even when they don't affect us directly, they affect the community we live in. So there's brokenness. But now let's, let's take it a little closer to the things that do directly affect us, the cause and effect that we cannot get around. That is the brokenness in our relationships, brokenness in our families. This is beyond the pain of divorce, even though that's a legitimate pain that roughly 60% of adults will go through. So it means most of us have gone through it at some degree. It's the relationship between parent and child and from grandchild to grandparent, blended families and the complications that come. It's the family unit. There's so much brokenness within that. There's brokenness within us internally. Brokenness that doesn't allow us sometimes to reconcile uh, the complex emotions that we have in our lives with the reality on the outside. And for some of us, we're like really grateful I'm really grateful for our life, for things like shelter and food and all the normal things that we we objectively thank God for. But emotionally, there's this turmoil. We're we're dealing with our emotions, whether it's anxiety or depression or whatever, discontent, whatever those emotions are. And it it makes us realize that there's a brokenness within us as individuals. So we've kind of moved this down from these macro issues to relational issues to internal issues that we deal with. So there it is. So what do you do when the car's broken down? What do you do when the weed eater's not functioning properly? What do you do when your schools are broken or the finances 
the financial system is broken or whatever the case is, the relationship with the government's broken. All of these different things, you come up with a solution and, and you try to find a mechanism that's going to fix things. If not, you just stay in brokenness and that's generally not acceptable to us. So what we do is we, when we become aware of our brokenness, we try to fix it and we try to look for solutions. Well, this leads me to this word you see behind me on the screen. It's a word atonement because I want to tell you a story today, a story that you're in the middle of, of the broken relationship that is between humanity and God. And this story of brokenness is the causation of all of the brokenness I've already mentioned to you. In other words, these issues that we deal with as a society, these issues we deal with as families, as friends, these issues we deal with internally spring from the fact that we have an issue with God. And we do. And that issue with God is why this beautiful word called atonement is presented to us today. Now you've probably heard this word before and you've probably heard me use this word before. The word atonement just kind of feels good. And sometimes when I'm preaching and preaching with enthusiasm and going on a run, so to speak, I may even say, the atonement of Christ. And maybe I'll say that later on. And it kind of feels good. It feels right because it is a good word. But often we functionally use words correctly that we don't know exactly what they mean. I'm finding this to be the case just in everyday life with me because these last few years I've done a lot of writing and reading and been working with words a lot. Uh, I will use a word in everyday conversation that really feels good and fitting and right. Then I have to go to dictionary.com to make sure that I use it correctly. And most of the time, the vast majority of the time, I kind of impress myself. I'm like, wow, that word was appropriate grammatically and said appropriately. And I just did it kind of instinctively. Now, I'm telling you this because that's what we do sometimes with religious words. Like we're comfortable with the word atonement and it feels important. And it even we may even sense God's anointing when we use the word, but we haven't really looked at or maybe not even looked at in a long time. What do we mean by the word atonement? You're going to be blessed today by looking at this. And, and I want to caution those of you who have been Christians a long time who you, you may have this, I don't know, this temptation at this point to say, oh, well, this is just going to be a simple sermon about Jesus. Let me check out and work on my grocery list. Please, please resist that temptation. Please. Because when we get bored with Jesus, we're at a vulnerable place. I've been preaching the gospel message for many, many years now. And with God's help, I never want to get used to the story. I never want to get tired of the story. And the Holy Spirit will give revelation about more of Jesus. And that's what I want for you today. I want for you today, when in a few minutes when we dismiss, and you go about the things that you have planned or God has planned for you, I want you to love Jesus more. I want you to love him more and understand him more. Does that sound like a good plan? All right, here's the definition of atonement. It's not 
in the notes. You're going to actually have to write or type it in your phone, but it's a helpful definition. The restoration of the broken relationship between God and man. That's what atonement is. Atonement is restoring the broken relationship between God and man. One of the problems with our culture today is we, we do not think that there's a broken relationship between us and God. One of the reasons for this, and I've said this point to you many times, but it's so important, I'll repeat it again, because we are engrossed in humanism. Humanism is every part of society. The thought that man is really good enough to solve all of his problems, he or she can solve their own problems. This sense of an overemphasis on the on the gifting of mankind causes us to think, we don't need God. I'm going to figure it out myself. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm smart, I'm talented, I'm determined. And those characteristics are real, but those characteristics are a gift from God. And so with humility, we, we start out with, to understand the atonement, we have to start out with our need for Christ. And I want you to know this. I want to tell this to you today. You need to hear this. You need Jesus. You need Christ. If you're, I'm guessing most of you are these upward mobile people with access to finances and access to opportunity and you get to choose how you spend your time and you get to choose much of your future and it's easy to say I'm in control and I'm making decisions but positionally God wants us to have the humility when we realize that we need atonement, we need Christ. We need reconciliation with God. There's a separation. There's a brokenness to us. So the first thing, I want you to write this down, the need for Christ. The need for Christ. Jesus, after he was resurrected, he he encountered some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's having this conversation with these disciples and he said this to, to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 26 and 27. He said these words, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now look at this, verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I want you to read that line. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus connected the story of what we call the Old Testament to him. And I want you to see today that you're in the middle of this story of, of atonement. The story of atonement, we're right, we're the beneficiaries of it, and Jesus is the center of it. So let me tell it to you as simply as I can. Man has always had a separation from God. Man has tried to find God through religion. God revealed himself to the Jewish people, and he revealed himself through Moses, and he revealed himself through the Torah, and he revealed himself through through means for atonement that involved something very grotesque to us, which is animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice is very 
uncomfortable. I'm very uncomfortable when I read the book of Leviticus. I really am. First of all, I like my animals. And I also believe that an expression of the kindness of the creator and Christ is for us, is for us to show kindness to animals. But if we're really, if we think about these ancestors of religious religion to us, they were, they were in a time when animal sacrifice was across the board in all religions. And, and so this was not a stigma that it is for us today. In addition to that, if we're really honest, and we don't really like to think about this, I don't want to ruin your lunch today, but the main meats that we eat, beef and pork and chicken, it's possible in a farming situation to grow an attachment to those animals. And yet, and yet they're, they're used for our consumption. So I say all of this to let you know this is I'm not really comfortable talking to you about this right now, but I have to because you need to understand the atonement here. And it's this, is that in the Old Testament, when animal sacrifice was used for the atonement, it was used as a payment for the sin. It was very grotesque and very uncomfortable. And there was a gravity upon the action that said, this behavior is so offensive to God that this act of death has to happen. And I don't like talking about that, and I don't like the fact that it happened. But God was pointing to one act. And if, you, if this makes you mad and you think that was a stupid system, so did Jesus, and so did God. Because it didn't work, it was incomplete. The atonement that came through all of, the, all of the rituals in the Old Testament was incomplete and was not good and didn't really help people. So the New Testament comes. And I want you to look at my Bible. And I want to give you this explanation. I've given it before, but it again bears repeating. You know, part of pastoral preaching is you repeat stuff intentionally. And just to let you, just to try to make you you know, feel more comfortable to thank you that to, to help you um, be at ease that I don't just randomly repeat stuff. That's why I'm saying I'm repeating this on purpose. I don't want y'all to be worried about the pastor. He keeps preaching the same stuff. I'm doing that on purpose. If we look, many times we look at the scripture and I'm holding a Bible here for the sake of my thousands of podcast listeners. And um, that's supposed to be funny. And my daughter laughed out loud for me. We think of the Bible as a timeline from Genesis to Revelation. From Genesis to Revelation. And there's some sequential aspects to it. But really what the Bible is, is the Old Testament is leading to Jesus, who's the apex of what he did on the cross. And then the rest of the New Testament, specifically Paul and Peter and John and James, they're trying to explain what Jesus did. So the pinnacle... The apex is Jesus, and everything leads to him, and everything is there for him. So we, we go to that, and the New Testament now comes, and Jesus comes, and he dies on the cross, and the way that they used to do it is abolished. 
And now the New Testament does not use the word atonement. But the concept of atonement is the central message of the New Testament. What the New Testament does is it lifts up Jesus and says, this is what happened. So we'll look at Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 21. This once for all event, the atonement of Jesus on the cross. Now look at verse 21. You can look on the screen if you want to. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. Think about this for a second. Apart from the law, all of those customs that made us uncomfortable, apart from that, let's get away from all that, has been revealed. It's attested by the law and prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. So there's no distinction between Jewish and Gentile people. Verse 23, you may have heard of this, but not contextually. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For God presented him as a propitiation through faith. Let me talk about that word for a second. Propitiation is the word that in the New Testament most closely parallels the word atonement. Now, interestingly enough, two very good versions of the Bible, the NIV and the New Living Translation, don't use the word propitiation. They just chose not to use that. They chose to use a more general term because there is no English equivalent of the word propitiation. The word propitiation was a familiar word in the day this writing was given for people who would offer sacrifices to a God. So the Holman, which we use typically, and the ESV, both use the word propitiation. God presented him, being Jesus, as a propitiation, our atonement, through faith in his blood, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be righteousness, he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So it is that God chose atonement. He didn't have to do it, but he chose atonement and there was only one way atonement could happen. The old system didn't work. He had to choose his own son. He had to choose Jesus. When we say he had to choose Jesus, it's not, it's because, because Jesus was the only sinless one. He was the only qualified one. So Jesus, because of our need, chose obedience. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. The obedience of Christ for us. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I usually tell a lot more stories, but I'm just giving you the Bible today, so sorry about that. My stories sometimes are amusing, but the Bible is always life-changing, okay? So stick with me. If, you, if you're not into this week's sermon, try, try us again another time. Now the insecure pastor can move on with his preaching. <laughs> the obedience of Christ for us. So God said the old system didn't work. And the only way to have it is for my son, my son, the sinless one. Christ, through the beauty of the Trinity and the mystery of the Trinity, chose obedience. Hebrews 5.8 says this, though he was God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. See, over the next couple of decades, it's very probable 
that you will encounter an attack on the deity of Jesus. Meaning this is our faith has rested in the creeds that have said Jesus was fully man, fully God. He's both. And it took hundreds of years for the church to say, this is, this is it. This is the safety that we have. Jesus is fully man and fully God at the same time. But over the next couple of decades, if it hasn't happened already, you're going to be exposed to attacks on the deity of Jesus, meaning this, people saying Jesus really isn't God. They'll, they'll, there'll be questions on Jesus' character, reliability, and I'm not even going to plant thoughts in your head of what some of these are because they're so outlandish, not based in historical fact, based in myth. But the point I want you to know for today and for your faith is that anything that diminishes the sinlessness of Jesus means there is no atonement. Because, it, because if Jesus did not live a perfect, obedient life, if he was not completely obedient and live a perfect life, then he is no different than any other historical figure that we may admire or recognize. Last Monday was President's Day. Back in January, there was MLK Day. And you can just add Jesus as one of those guys or one of those girls. But he's holy, and he's separate, and he's sinless, and that makes him qualified. If he's not perfect, he's not the answer and the atonement. If Jesus isn't sinless, there is no atonement. If Jesus isn't sinless, there is no, no way that we're reconciled with God. See, the word atonement, I failed to mention to you earlier, in a more basic definition, means one with God. That's actually what, the most basic definition of the word, one with God. If Jesus did not obey, we would not be one with God. Here's a closely related point. Here's the third point. The suffering of Christ for us. The suffering of Christ for us. Hebrews chapter 2, and let's go all the way to verse 18. We're not going to read all of the context of this. You can read that later. Go to that last slide. Look at verse 18. We see that he made, there's the word propitiation again. The the New Testament word for the atonement in verse 17. For since he himself was tested and suffered, he's able to help those who are tested. So the suffering of Jesus, meaning this, not just what happened on the cross, but he suffered with the temptation of sin, but he overcame. He never once sinned. He's completely pure. He's completely holy. He's without error. He is qualified. That's why in the book of Revelation, when we get an insight to the throne of God, they said, they opened one of the seals and they said, who is worthy? Who is worthy to do this? And they said, there's only one, the lamb. He is the only one that is worthy. Jesus is worthy because he lived a sinless life. Here's the last point I want to make today. It's the complete work of Christ for us. I want this to mark you today. I want this to get into your spirit today. The complete work of Christ the complete once for all time work of Christ. The reason that we are Jesus-centered people and cross-centered people, people who are fixated, obsessed with the death and resurrection of Jesus is because that was the once for all time sacrifice for sin. That was it. And the implications of this are so important to us. And we can understand the freedom that this brings to our life. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25 says it this way. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. That's talking about the day of atonement, that old system that didn't work, verse 26. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared, look what the words say on the screen or look in your Bible, one time at the end of the age for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the message of the atonement. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also the Messiah having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the central point of our faith. This is the nucleus of our faith. This atonement changes everything. And I, and I want you to understand this, and we're taking time to, so that we can be among those who nurture on this truth. We can be among those who are Jesus-focused, Jesus-centered people. Because if not, all we get is religion. If not, all we get is an empty substitute for what God has. So it is. Our story is this. We're in this broken world. And we see brokenness all around us, every segment of society. We see brokenness in our relationships. And we feel brokenness internally. And ultimately, that points us to the fact that we're broken from God. But we don't have to stay broken. Because in the old days, in the old ways, the system that didn't work has been abolished. It's gone. It's over. The pinnacle happened when Jesus, to use my Bible again as a physical illustration, the apex, the pinnacle happened when Jesus died on the cross. He was resurrected. And now we're living out this truth. We're living this out. The gospel is bursting forth out of our lives. And the Lord doesn't want you to live in mystery. And he doesn't want you to live in confusion. And he doesn't want you to stay in the land of brokenness. Because when you realize the implications that the gospel story and what he did on the cross and what he did at the resurrection brings life to every area of your life. It touches every single part of who we are and what we do. I want us to look one last time before we close. And you'll see there's other scriptures that I didn't read for the sake of brevity today. But there's other. I want us to look one more time at Romans chapter 3. Tonight, or Wednesday night, in your, or this afternoon in your 242 group. Uh, there was a question that talks about different translations of the Bible. And that it was not meant to have a translation debate. It was meant to point this out is a lot of our word-for-word Bible translations bring us important words like propitiation and atonement. And then thought-for-thought translations like the New Living Translation, which has been a blessing to me, help us understand that better. I want us to look at Romans 3 now. This is out of the New Living Translation. And and I I want this to speak to your spirit now. I want this to speak to your soul I'm asking God right now just to make this life to you. Now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him. 
without keeping the requirements of the law as it was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. This is good news. I'm here to say that there are difficult things of the Bible that don't even apply anymore. It just led us to our need for Jesus. It just, it just opened up our, our need, this incomplete system that just was burdensome. Let us know we needed a savior. We needed a rescue. And we know who that rescue is. It's Jesus. So now God's shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Now we'll go to verse 22. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. This is good news, is it? It's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for the American people. It's for all people. It's not just for the moral people. It's for the people who have addictions and problems. You know that today in our country, and I don't have the most accurate statistic, but I'm going to, if I remember correctly, three to four million people are incarcerated in America today. That means people are living in prison because of the consequences of their decisions. And I want you to know that those people, and we're assuming that most of them is justified. I'm sure there's some that are wrongly incarcerated. But let's assume that most of them are in jail and they deserve to be in jail. Can I tell you that they have every right to the communion table and every right to the worship and the sermon you've experienced than anyone in this room? Because the gospel's for everyone. And that's why we believe God has a plan for the Muslim and the Arab people. We do not hate them, we pray for them. We love the Jewish people as our faith has sprung from Judaism, but we love the Palestinian people also and believe that God has a plan for the Palestinians and he has a plan for the North Koreans because if he doesn't have a plan for them, then his plan for me is ineffective and null. This is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. That means if you're breathing today on this planet, God has a plan for you. If you're, if you're alive today, God has a plan for, now here's, here's one of the classic scriptures that we just see by ourselves. Now, I hope it means a little more to you. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God with undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. In the other version, the propitiation, the atonement. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sanctified his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead, including them and what he would do in this present time. I could talk about that a long time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Guys, that's us. And that's everyone else who, who believes. Many who have not heard. And I say, praise the Lord for this. And I say in humility, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. Many of us, because we don't meditate on this truth enough, we are very arrogant about our salvation. Some of us in the old kind of revival mindset, you know, grandma's praying for me, my spouse is praying for me, everybody, the preacher's visiting me, and oh, well, 
I just finally, I'm just going to give in. I'm going to give in and just raise my hand because I am so important. I am so important that when I get saved, it will just, it'll shake the community. It'll shake the family. That may have been the way you entered in, but that's not the mature way to enter because maturity helps us understand that I'm a sinner. I am hopeless without Jesus. It doesn't matter if someone like me, I've been preaching the gospel for 25 years now. And that doesn't matter. I am nobody without Jesus. I am nothing without his salvation, but yet he chose me. And I've been able to hear his name and voice while I stand together. Let's stand together. I got to find a landing because you guys want to leave. <laughs> That's what's so funny too. We're going to enjoy Jesus today. And that phrase came to my spirit um, during the first service. I've never used that phrase before, so I had to think about it a little bit. We're going to enjoy Jesus today. We have communion available in the front and the back. And I want you to know that you don't have to take communion. And in fact, on this particular Sunday, we, we, it's, it's not the Sunday we designate for us all to take communion. That's the second Sunday of the month. And you may like my sermon and enjoyed it, but just for whatever reason, you're not going to take communion today. I didn't take communion first service for some practical reasons. But I want you to know it's available today. And I won't give, if you're visiting with us, I won't give further instructions. You can take the bread and cup. And when you've examined your heart, repented of sin, uh, take the bread, take the cup. You can do it by yourself. You can do it with somebody that you love or care for that you're here with. But I want us to enjoy Jesus today. I'm going to tell you the reason we're going to enjoy Jesus is because he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I, I want to tell you this, and, and, and I really feel led to tell you this, even though I feel led to tell you this. Many of you have not enjoyed Jesus because you've been under bad teaching. Now, you've been under good people who love you, but they've been giving you bad teaching and they have put you under a yoke of legalism that is every bit Every bit as frustrating and suffocating as what the Pharisees and how they interpreted uh, the Torah, how they interpreted the Old Testament. And so it was when Jesus was around that the Pharisees would give laws upon laws. And people would say, I'm following a certain rabbi. And they may say, I'm, I'm taking the yoke of Aaron Allison on me because Aaron's teachings, this is, he interprets this part of the law and he interprets this another way. And he might say, I'm taking the yoke of Rabbi Sid Shaw upon me, or I'm taking the yoke. And whatever yoke you took upon you was how you interpret the scripture. And, and most of them historically were rule upon rule upon rule upon the rules that already existed. Jesus said this, this young rabbi from Nazareth who preached with authority, uh, he said, come to me because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. When you leave today, when you leave in, a, in a, just a few minutes, I, I want you to leave here lighter. I want you to leave here better because of Jesus and let's enjoy him.